You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Thinking Talmudist Podcast. You know, it reminds me when, uh, when they were doing a developers conference for Microsoft. So the CEO, the Jewish guy, I don't remember his name, he's, he gets on the stage and he's like, developers, 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 developers. So by me, it's just the opposite. It's Talmud, 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 Talmud. Like we, you know, the Talmud is the most remarkable teaching because it gives you all of the rest of the story that's required to understanding Torah. If a person doesn't have a connection with Talmud, it's very difficult to make any sense out of the Torah. It's very difficult. So the Talmud gives us an insight that we learn so many beautiful things in the Talmud. I mean, all of the guidance of Torah is through the lens of the Talmud. So let's begin. We are on Chav Bey's Ahmed Aleph on the 22A. We are on 22A in Tractate Shabbat. Last week, we talked about the positioning, the location of the menorah, where it should be placed. We discussed it should be placed on the right side of the doorway, uh, on the left side of the doorway, because you have the mezuzah on the right, and you'll have the menorah on the left. And like this, when we walk into our house, into our homes, we will be encircled, we'll be surrounded by mitzvahs. We have the mezuzah on the right, the menorah on the left. That's beautiful. Also, we discussed that it shouldn't be too high or too low. It shouldn't be, you know, so high that you can't see it looking up. It's like four stories up. It's 40 feet up or too low that it can catch on to, to something and make and create and make a fire. So these are things we need to be cautious about. Just as a general side note, uh, yeah, Hanukkah is great. Hanukkah is beautiful. There's a danger if people aren't careful with lighting a menorah and leaving it unattended. Uh, there's stories, sadly, every year of houses burning down because of fires that started by a menorah, uh, catching onto a drape or catching onto the wall or catching onto the tablecloth or whatever it is. It should be very, very careful, uh, very carefully placed in a safe place by the window so that, and ensured, hopefully, that it's uh, not going to catch on to anything else. Generally speaking, I think it's a good idea not to leave a fire burning without anyone at home so that someone should be monitoring it regularly. Okay, the Gemara returns to the question of whether one may make use of a Hanukkah lights illumination. We mentioned last week that one should not use the menorah light for any personal use. So, if you light your menorah, and you want to read a book, you shouldn't read a book to the light of the menorah. We don't have permission, we don't have the right to use the light of the menorah for our own personal use. The only purpose of the menorah is to look at them, to gaze upon them. Our sages, the Hasidic masters, tell us that the light of the menorah has incredible power of spirituality to infuse us with holiness through our eyes. There are many, many important lessons that the Hasidic masters delve into. What is the depths of the whole holiday of Hanukkah? Very, very important lessons. Hopefully, we'll get to them in the coming weeks. 
Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Rav Asi, Amar Rav. Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav Asi, who said in the name of Rav. Asur leharzos maos keneged ner Hanukkah. It is forbidden to count money opposite the Hanukkah light. Right? There is a dispute between the earlier commentaries as to whether or not Ravasi takes issue with Rav, whose ruling above was attributed to his holding that it is forbidden to make use of the Hanukkah light's illumination. The Balhamor, one of the commentaries, understands that Rav prohibited use of the Hanukkah light even to perform other mitzvahs. So what's if I'm using the Hanukkah light to give charity, to count money to give charity? So that's that's doing a mitzvah. Uh, according to the Balamar, you shouldn't be it shouldn't be used for that. While Rav Asi maintained that only non-sacred use, such as counting money for other purposes, were proscribed and prohibited. Rav Asi was concerned about the Hanukkah light being treated disrespectfully and therefore prohibited only non-sacred uses. Rav, however, viewed the Hanukkah light as a commemoration of the Temple Menorah, which was not used even for other sacred purposes. According to the Ran, however, Rav Asi concurs with Rav that even mitzvah uses are forbidden. Rav Asi is only coming to teach that even minor usage, such as counting money, are included in the prohibition. Okay, so now the Talmud uh, goes on to bringing different proofs from other areas as to whether or not you can or cannot use the menorah light for anything else. I want to move on to a little bit further down the page of 22a in Tractate Shabbat. The Gemara elaborates further on the requirement to act respectfully towards all mitzvahs. We have to have a proper respect for all mitzvahs. I'll give you an example. So sometimes people wear a talus and the talus is dragging on the floor. The, the strings are dragging on the floor. That's disrespect to the mitzvah. It's a special mitzvah, a commandment in the Torah that any four-cornered cornered garments needs to have tzitzit. It needs to have the, the fringes on it. And having it drag on the floor is disrespect to the mitzvah. If someone is uh, wrapping tefillin, the, the straps of the tefillin shouldn't go on the floor. You can put them on the table, you know, because while you're turning them around your hand, they could be, you know, on the floor. Try to avoid that because it's not respectful for a mitzvah. Now, is it a prohibition? No. Does it make it unkosher? No. But to have the proper respect for a mitzvah. Itmar, it was stated, Rav Omar Ein Madliki Miner Liner. Rav said that we may not kindle from one Hanukkah light to another Hanukkah light. Ushmuel Amar Madlik, and Ushmuel said that you may kindle in this fashion. Rav Amar Eimetir and Tzitzis mi beged lebeged. Rav said that you may not unfasten Tzitzis, the strings, the fringes, from an old four-cornered garment in order to reattach it to a new four-cornered garment. Ushmuel Amar Matir mi beged lebeged. While Shmuel says that we may unfasten Tzitzis from one garment and transfer it to another. Rav Amar Ein Halachakrav Shimon Begrira. Rav said that the law does not accord with Rav Shimon in the case of dragging. The Gemara will explain the reference. Since the Halacha follows Rav's opinion in all disputes with Shmuel involving ritual law, except the three mentioned here, the Gemara cites them together, even though its focus is the case of the Hanukkah lights. 
Okay, so what were the arguments? Number one was Rav and Shmuel disagree regarding lighting from one candle to another, whether or not you can transfer tzitzis from one garment to another. And the third case, Amar Abaya. Abaya said, Kol mili dimar ovid kirav. In all matters, in all of the master's affairs, he acted in accordance with Rav. Libar mehanitlas the ovid kishmuel. Except for these three cases, where he accorded to Shmuel's opinion. He conceded that we may kindle from one candle of the Hanukkah menorah to another, and to transfer a new garment, uh, the tzitzis from the old garment to the new garment. And the law does accord with Reb Shimon in the case of dragging. Etanya doesn't say what it is. We'll fa- I'm sure the Gemara is going to explain it. It was taught in the Bryce, Reb Shimon, Omer Reb Shimon says, Gorer Mita Kisei Vesafsol. Here's the dragging case. You ready? A person may drag a bed, chair, or bench across the ground on Shabbos, Ubilvad so long as he does not intend to make a furrow. So these are cases on Shabbos, we have th- this issue, where on Shabbos, what happens if someone has to move a very heavy bench? Dragging it across your lawn is going to plow the ground. It's going to make a furrow. Are you allowed to do that on Shabbos? Right, well, so typically you're not allowed to do that on Shabbos because you're plowing. But here you need the bench, you need the chair, you need the table. So according to Rev Shimon, as long as you don't intend to make a furrow, it is okay. As long as your intention is not to do so. There is a Tanaic dispute as to whether one may perform a permitted act on the Shabbos when it is possible that he will accidentally perform a forbidden labor as well. Rabbi Shimon holds that a person is allowed to perform the permitted act, i.e. dragging a bed across an unpaved courtyard, so long as he does not intend to perform the forbidden labor, creating a furrow, an action that would qualify as a subcategory of plowing or building on Shabbos. Rav Yehuda prohibits the performance of the permitted, per, per, the permitted act in such a case. Abai informs us that Rabbi Bar Nachmani concurs with Shmuel's acceptance of Reb Shimon's opinion as law. Okay, so now the Talmud continues. The Gemara now discusses the reason for Rav's stringent opinion in the first of the disputed cases, which is about lighting from one candle to another. So you have a menorah. Can you light from one candle to the other? Now, we know the end of the story already, right? What, what do we know? Use the shamash. The shamash is the ninth man on the team, right? We have eight candles of the menorah. We have an extra one, which does what? That is the guide candle that we use to light the others. But what's if you didn't have it? That's the solution. That's the answer. But what happens prior to having a shamash? Before this was instituted to have the shamash so that you not come to use from one candle to the other, you had a problem. Okay? And that's what the Gemara is talking about. One of the rabbis was once seated before Rav Adabar Ahava. And while seated there, he said, Rav's reason for pro- prohibiting kindling from one Hanukkah light to another 
is because the action demonstrates disrespect for the commandment. Amr Luhur of Adabarava thereupon said to the assembled sages, Lo sitzaitsu lay. Do not listen to him. Taimo de Rav Mishum de Komakhish Mitzvah. Rav's reason for ruling stringently not to light from one candle to another is because such a method of kindling appears to diminish the mitzvah's the mitzvah object. It diminishes the mitzvah. You're using what is supposed to be a light to be as your lighter, as your match. And it's supposed to be the light, and instead you're using it as a match. It appears as though one is dimming the flame of the Hanukkah candle by drawing out some of its oil when it ignites the chip with the light's flame. So the light that you lit for the menorah now is being a little diminished when it lights something else. And that dimming of that light for even one millisecond before it regains its strength is a disrespect to the Hanukkah light. So let me ask you let me ask you a different question. Let's say you used a different candle to light them all. But now one of the candles went out. How do you relight it? Do you use the, the candle right next to it and just relight it? No. Because that would be diminishing the honor and, and respect of that candle. So so there we go. So so that's where the, where it would come in to use a different candle as the shamash to reignite the one that was extinguished. Well, here's the case in in this case that that they're talking here. They had oil. They didn't have the wax. They had the regular oil menorah and they had to tilt the glass and, you know, while it was lighting up the next light, it's using up more of its oil, diminishing its light. So that that's the, I think the disrespect that they were referring to, the disrespect to the mitzvah. But the commentaries here say, according to Rav Ada Bar Ava's explanation, Rav and Shmuel dispute only the question of whether kindling from light to light gives the appearance of diminishing a mitzvah. Does it give the appearance of diminishing a mitzvah or not? However, Rav Ada Bar Ava holds that both Rav and Shmuel agree that one may not kindle from light to light in a disrespectful manner, such as by means of a wood chip. So if you take a wood chip and you light from one candle to the next candle, it's just a disrespectful manner in which you're you're extending that light. It's very interesting because our sages teach us that a mitzvah is like a candle. Why? So here's the most amazing thing. You know, when you give someone else the opportunity for a mitzvah, we always think that it's a zero-sum game. So there's a limited amount of reward that's going to be distributed. And now you got to split it between yourselves. So imagine like a pyramid scheme. right? So this is it's only this, amount, this much money. And now what are you going to do? That's how much there is. However, that's not the way it works in God's world. Every time, every time you do a mitzvah and every time you have someone else do a mitzvah, you inspire someone else to do a mitzvah, guess what happens? Now, one didn't become 50, 50 each, right? They're 50 cents each from the $1. Now, the $1 became $2. Now, you each have one. And now, that continues to expand with each person that does a mitzvah. So, if you inspire someone 
you teach someone how to do something that's a good deed, that's a mitzvah, guess what? You get the reward for the mitzvah that they performed. That's amazing. I say that we need to be hoarders of mitzvahs. Hoarders. How do you, how do you hoard mitzvahs? By giving more opportunities for people to do mitzvahs. Because you get that, that, that interest. You get the principle and you get the interest. It's an incredible gift. Where do we learn that from? We've said in the beginning, it's compared to a candle. Because if everyone is standing around holding a candle, and I take from my candle and I light your candle, what happens? Now we both have a candle. And then the next candle, we, we still, my candle wasn't diminished because I lit your candle. And that's the same idea of a mitzvah. Doesn't You don't extinguish the mitzvah that was done. You don't minimize the reward either by giving someone else an opportunity to do a mitzvah. On the contrary, you get the reward as if they did it. So he's saying that it, the the way in which it's done needs to be done respectfully. But also, when something is done for a mitzvah, it needs to be stay, staying as a mitzvah. Meaning it needs to stay with its proper usage. I'll give you an example. Okay, If someone has a a mitzvah, let's pick any mitzvah. A, uh, there's a mitzvah to honor a king. Okay, a mitzvah to honor a king. If the if the king has to go and clean up the floor, that would be disrespectful, right? Why? Because that's not that's not your job, right? Yeah, but I but I'm just a human being, right? But it's still that's not your job. That's not where you need to be dealing with. That's not what you need to be dealing with. There's other people who can do that. When we light a menorah, the menorah is the king right now. And using that menorah to light another candle, you're making him sort of a servant to do a job that's not his job. He's the king. He's the mitzvah. We don't, you understand? You don't use him as a vessel to do other other things. That's the dispute that they're having here in the Talmud of whether or not you're allowed to use it or not. Okay, see, he says over here, my binayu. What is the practical difference between the two sages' opinions? See, so he says, There is a difference, and the difference is as follows. There exists a difference between them in the case where one kindles directly from one Hanukkah light to another Hanukkah light. According to one, the one who said that Rav ruled stringently because kindling from light to light demonstrates disrespect for the commandment. Rav would concede that one may candle directly from one Hanukkah light to another Hanukkah light. For without the intervening wood chip, there is no disrespect of the mitzvah. Okay, so he says the only reason there's a disrespect is because you're using something which is inferior to light it. But if it's just directly from one Hanukkah candle to the other, it's not a problem. Man mishum. But according to the opinion that says that Rav ruled stringently because kindling the light from from light to light appears to diminish the mitzvah object, then in that case, lighting a Hanukkah light from one to another would be prohibited. Why? Because it's disrespect. Okay, so... That's the that's the 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 reason for why Rava said that, based on the reason 
could have a different outcome. We don't know the reason. We're trying to figure that out. The Gemara challenges the first explanation of Rav's rule. Masiv Rav Avya Avya. Rav Avya retorted by citing a Braiso. Sela Shell. With regard to a Sela coin. Masasheni. Ein Shoklin Keneged Dinere Zahav. We may not weigh unconsecrated gold dinner coins opposite it to see if they are whole. And this is so even if one intends to redeem other second tithe produce upon the dinner coins. We'll explain this in a minute. Now, it is well if you say that when Rav and Shmuel argue it is in a case where one kindles directly from one Hanukkah light to another Hanukkah light. Avo bekinsa Shmuel. But to kindle the second light with a wood chip, even Shmuel prohibits it. And this b'risa would not be a refutation of such an interpretation. But if you say that Shmuel permits kindling the second light with a wood chip, as well, since it is needed for the for performing a mitzvah, ha to have it yufta. Then this brisa would be indeed a refutation of your opinion. So, the 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 idea here is, what is the proper conduct for a mitzvah? What is the proper conduct for a mitzvah? When you do a mitzvah, the idea here is that you're supposed to recognize that this vessel, this mitzvah, is a tool to bring you closer to Hashem. That's the tool. Because it's a vessel to bring you closer to Hashem, it requires the proper respect, the proper honor, the proper dignity. It's an amazing thing. You see, the Sephardic Jews understood this. They understand this. And the way they respect the mitzvah is really, really special is, for example, if they see a kippah, a yarmulke on the floor, or they, they take it off, they put it on, they'll give it a kiss. Why? Because it's a mitzvah. They have a special respect for a mitzvah. And at, at the end of what the, what the Talmud's trying to derive here is that when someone lights a menorah, it's a mitzvah. It's a tool through which we connect to God on a higher level. In which case... It requires, it demands of us to give it due respect, okay? And not to use it as a vessel through which we are going to be busy lighting other candles or doing other things. Okay, that's, that's the bottom line. Let's, the Gemara now is going to, we're going to move a little further down the Gemara. The Gemara says, the For indeed, the sages have previously queried, Hadlaka osa mitzvah o hanacha osa mitzvah. What does the mitzvah of menorah? Lighting the menorah or placing the menorah in its place? Which one does the mitzvah? So if I light it in the wrong place, does that count? How about if I place it in the right place but don't light it? That doesn't either count. So we need, so it's, oh, let's see, let's see what's going on over here. So, the Gemara attempts to answer this question of whether kindling or placement is the primary mitzvah act. Kindling or placing? Tashma, come learn a proof that placement is primary. The Amar Rava, 
Rava said, Haya Tafus Ner Omed, if one was standing and holding his Hanukkah menorah, his Hanukkah light from the time he kindled it by the doorway until it went out. So he lights his menorah, sits down, and holds his menorah the entire time that the Hanukkah light is lit. Lo Lo Klum, he has accomplished absolutely nothing, says the Talmud. Shmamino, Hanukkah Osa Mitzvah, derive from this dictum. That placement accomplishes the commandment, for it was the person's failure to put the light down that prevented him from having fulfilled the mitzvah. The Gemara rejects this proof. It says, Hasam Haroa Elmer, the non fulfillment theory is because one who sees him holding the light may say, It was for his own purpose that he was holding it. In which case, the miracle will not be publicized. Ordinarily, however, the mitzvah is fulfilled with the kindling. In that specific case, we assume that he only lit the menorah because he wanted to have the light. He was cold. He held the menorah so he can be close. Or he, you know, whatever whatever personal reason he may have. But he wasn't lighting it for the mitzvah. He was lighting it or to, to publicize the miracle. He was just lighting it because, right? And that's why he held it. But had he put it down, he would have fulfilled the mitzvah. So it says, no, that's not a proof. That example is not a good proof because that's an individual case which gives us an individual ruling. But it's not. It's, you can't learn that to other things. So the Gemara now takes the opposite tack. Toshma, come and learn proof that kindling is primary. To Amar Rav, Rav said, Hidlika bifnim v'hutziah, if one kindled the Hanukkah light inside the house and then carried it outside to place it by the doorway, he has accomplished nothing. Now, if it is well, if you say that kindling chiefly accomplishes the commandment, for this implies that we require a kindling in its proper place, meaning it's not lighting the menorah. It's lighting the menorah in the proper place. Well, Possibly. We'll see. We need the hadlaka, we need the can- the kindling to be in the proper place. Because of this, it was not lit in the right place because he lit it one place and moved it to another place. So now it's not a lighting. But if you say that placement accomplishes the commandment, that where you put it and where you lit it, the placement of the lighting is what fulfills the commandment. Then why did he do nothing? He placed his Hanukkah light in the proper location. We must therefore conclude that Rava's dictum, that kindling constitutes the primary mitzvah act, is indeed what does it. Kindling it in the right place. And if you move it to the right place, it doesn't count. It has to be lit in the right place. The Gemara rejects this proof as well now. The Gemara says, Hasam Nami, there also the non-fulfillment is because, no, it's not the same as Shabbos candles. Shabbos candles in general, good question, Bobby. Shabbos candles are muktza. You can't touch them after they're lit. Once they're lit, you cannot move them. So that's a different, a different issue. Now, there is a way around it, the halacha says. How what's the way around it? If you have the Shabbos, if you light the Shabbos candles, for example, many people like to have, you know, where does this whole 
you know, having a candle at a romantic dinner. It comes from Shabbos, by the way. And people, uh, this is already thousands of years where women are lighting Shabbos candles and they would have it on their Shabbos table. But what happens, you need to clean the Shabbos table now or change the tablecloth and you have the Shabbos candles, you can't move them because it's muktzah. It's something which is de- designated for weekday activity. Why is it designated for weekday activity? Because guess what? We don't light Shabbos candles on Shabbos. We light Shabbos candles before Shabbos. We're not allowed to light a, a, a light on Shabbos. So it's it's for pre-Shabbos activity, not for Shabbos activity. Therefore, you can't move it. So what do we do? You need to change the tablecloth and you have your candelabra on the table. So the solution our sages tell us is to make sure that you light it on a tray or on a plate. Then what you can do is, and this is a trick. This is not, this is, this is real halacha. Okay. The halacha says to do this. You can put something that you are allowed to move on that tray and then you can move it. So, for example, you have Friday night tonight, you prepare your Shabbos candles on a tray in the middle of your Shabbos table. It's going to be so beautiful. You're going to have the Shabbos candle right there on your Shabbos table. And now you have it on a tray. The Shabbos candles are so beautiful Friday night. Now, after the meal, the lights are out already, the candles are out. You want to move the Shabbos candle, the Shabbos candelabra. What are you going to do? So you can take something which is permitted to move, like a knife, a fork, a spoon. You can move that on Shabbos. That's not a problem. Place that on that tray, and now you can move the tray. You understand? Because it is now, that tray is a foundation for something which is permitted to move. Yeah, it's true. There's also something that's not permitted to move. I'll give you another example. Not a good example, but it's, it's an example. Keys, are you allowed to have, again, this is where you're allowed to carry if there's an Eruv, okay? So that's just a, you have an Eruv in your community and you're going to eat by someone else's house. So you need to lock your door of your house. So you take your key and you lock your door. Now what do you do with your key? You can take it with you. But there's also car keys on that keychain. Car keys are? Because you're not allowed to drive a car in Shabbos. So if you're not allowed to drive a car, the keys for the car are also prohibited. But because you have the key that you're allowed to have for your house and the car key is secondary to that, you can carry it. Again, this is only if you have an Eruv, only if you have the boundaries around the neighborhood as a designated domain it becomes a single domain, all of the houses, and that's why we have the strings that go around the neighborhood. We have, I think, four or five different Eruvs in Houston. Houston's a big city, so to have it for all the different neighborhoods, soon there's going to be another one for Torchwood. It's going to be another Eruv that they're, they're putting together. So this is a, a remarkable development in our city. But the problem is, if you have an area between Eruvs, so let's say if you were to walk from my neighborhood to this neighborhood where we are here at the Torch Center, you can't carry because there's no contiguous Eruv. There's an Eruv that gets you halfway here and then about you know 30% of the way from here. So you have that area that's not covered, that doesn't have an Eruv. 
So that could be problematic. Now in Houston, another gift that we have, it's not the topic of our conversation about Eruv, but we have a great gift in that the, the way the phone wires are constructed in Houston is very, very helpful for Eruv. Well, as long as there is a contiguous, okay, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, it's like, it, as long as it's contiguous, it doesn't make a difference. Um, that one ends here, one starts there, that's fine. But if you have an area which is not covered by the north Eruv or the south Eruv, you have this like 50 feet of no Eruv, that, that's problematic. That becomes a problem. Well, yeah, it, it, it only gets expensive because you have to actually rent machinery. You have to rent a truck that has to be lifted up. You have to go all the way 40 feet up in the air and make sure that it's properly... Because you need to have a lechi and a kora. I don't want to get too much into this, but you have you have to have the beam that goes vertically and then the string or the wire that goes from pole to pole. Okay, so now you have the two poles here. And you have the string that goes. Now, the way in which it has to go is that it has to be from the top of it, from the top of the pole. It can't be on the side of the pole. It has to be from the top of it, a way in which that it's like a doorway, so to speak. So you could use the existing. You could use the existing, but you have to ensure that each one is done properly. You have to make sure that if it does come, sometimes it does come from the side. So that's also, you can have a solution for that as well. If you have... So here is our pole. Here is our horizontal pole. And then the city of Houston electrical pole, right? And then you have the electrical wire that just comes out of the side. So what do you do now? It comes out of the side. So you can't use this. It has to come out from the top of the pole. So what you can do is you can weld a piece of metal here that is beneath the pole. And that way it makes it as if it is coming out from the top of the pole. No, it does not have to go all the way up. It has to be a certain height, and then it's considered as if it goes all the way to the heavens. Yes. If it's set on the top of the pole, it's perfect. You don't have to do anything. Correct. You could just use that. And uh, Houston is is good good for that. Uh, the roads might not be so good, but the Eruv is much easier. But still, you have to have a rabbi go through the entire area ensuring. Now, if there's down phone wires, got a problem. I remember I used to be in charge of the Eruv of one of the neighborhoods in Muncie, New York. Now, Muncie has its own Eruv, the big Muncie Eruv. It goes all the way around the whole city. But you also have the, each neighborhood likes to have their own just in case that fails or whatever. You know, it's like, it's a, so they hired me to be the air of checker every friday and i would go i was a single guy and i was like i had a car and i was like okay i'll do it why not make some side money i learned the laws of Eruv, and uh i went around the community it was some of it went through a forest and it was like it was a it was a complicated some house had to go around okay i get a phone call one time about 30 minutes before shabbos that a tractor trailer came into the neighborhood and knocked down the main wire heading into the community. Now, there's another problem, is that how would people know if the Erev was up or not? There'd be a notification that was that was uh, uh, put on the, the phones. It was before we had emails and text messaging, right, like you have today. Today, you can just text everyone in the, in the group. Erev is up. Everything is great. But that wasn't the case. You had So they had a hotline. 
and they would, the hotline would start, let's say, at 12 o'clock. As soon as I called the rabbi, I told him, Erev is good, Erev is up, it's repaired, I fixed it, everything is good. So then I, I was, it, was, uh, it was notified on the hotline, Erev is up, and everything is fine. But really, that, that notice went out, that the Erev is up, and now 30 minutes before Shabbos, the Erev is down. Erev is very, very clearly down. Biggest problem was is that it was a very snowy day, and it's it's freezing cold. But the cold, fine, we'll get over the cold. But it's thirty minutes before Shabbos, so I had to. I ran to that to that. I got notified about it. I ran there and got out the ladder and got out the rope and got out the string and everything, and had to restring it, go across that main entrance to the neighborhood, and get back up on top to the second the second pole, restring the whole thing, so that people won't desecrate Shabbos unknowingly because they already heard on the hotline that it's up. It got knocked down 30 minutes before Shabbos and it's a miracle it's 30 minutes before Shabbos because if it gets down knocked down on Shabbos you can't fix it on Shabbos. And everyone will be carrying and desecrating Shabbos when there's really no Eruv. The problem. So it's not our topic of discussion but uh, that's but it is because uh, it's Torah. But it really is an amazing um, set of halachas and laws you have to have that the people inside that neighborhood all agree and are all willing participants in this eruv. So if you have a neighbor who says, "I'm not, I'm not, don't count me in. I'm not. I don't want to be part of this," so you have to go around their house, right? There's 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 uh, a lot of interesting. A lot of interesting dimensions to this to this halachas. There's an interesting uh, halacha that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein writes in his response so that New York City can never have an Erev. So any part of New York City that's called New York City cannot have an Erev. And the reason is because the halacha says that you can never make an Erev through a public thoroughfare. What is the definition of a public thoroughfare? a place that has more than 600,000 travelers a day through it. Because New York City has way more than 600,000 people driving in and out of it every day, it's considered a public thoroughfare, and you cannot place an Eruv on New York City, even though it's not an area of in Brooklyn, right? But it's the five boroughs of New York City. So you have Brooklyn, Manhattan, you know, all of the other Queens. Uh, but either way, the five boroughs, Right, so you have you have the five boroughs of New York City. All of those five boroughs fall into the category of being part of New York City. And therefore, the majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of New York City Jews do not hold of any Eruv. Now, the Hasidic community never accepted the rulings of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and their their halachic decisor said that it's not a problem in their in their areas. As long as in their area you don't have that thoroughfare, it's it's a different different halacha, and uh, he was he made that differentiation, uh, so they accept that, and therefore in the Hasidic areas of the community of New York they'll have an eruv, and in the non-Hasidic there's no eruv. Sorry, um, but again everyone should fo- follow the ruling of their own bona fide Torah observant rabbi. When we lived in Brooklyn, we did not carry. All right. My dear friends, we're going to stop here.